The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We do have Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, we'd invite you to take those out and then to visit our Welcome Center where we have Bibles there as a gift for you. We would love to give you uh, to take home. We will be concluding our Good Life series this morning by looking at Galatians chapter 5. And uh, something you may have noticed in the last several weeks in this series, and some weeks have been more explicit than others, but you may have noticed this pattern of what we have called uh, embracing and refraining. Much of what we've been uh, talking about has been taking on maybe new, maybe new patterns, new disciplines, while at the same time refraining from current bad habits or current bad disciplines. And so the idea is this, we need to practice, we need to embrace practices or values which God in his word says leads to a good and godly life. And we need to resist the things that are distracting us and taking away from the life that we can live in Christ. And so we've tackled topics like how to embrace good work and resist work idolatry, or to embrace community and hospitality while resisting isolation and those things which tend to lead to loneliness. We've talked about embracing the Lord's day and rest and worship while resisting the things that tend to lead to burnout or anxiety or take away from the corporate life of the church. And I think it's appropriate, uh, this wasn't planned originally, but I do think it's appropriate that we're concluding this series during this Reformation week. This last week, uh, every year, is when we remember the German monk Martin Luther and when he nailed his 95 uh, theses to the door on the Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517, and thus he ignited the fire of what became known as the Reformation. And some of the core concerns and questions that developed during the Reformation were these. How is a sinner made right with a holy God? Is it by faith alone? Or do we in some way contribute to our salvation with our works? If not, what is the role of our obedience and our effort in the Christian life? I hope we'll see this morning that these historical questions are of present concern to us as we approach this text and close out this series. Because as we explore what is required on our part to faithfully live a good life, we're entering into this historical conversation and asking similar questions for life in our present age. What is required to find and live the good life? Is it something which just sort of happens to us passively? If not, what is the role of our effort, our intentionality, in finding and living the good life? And so those are the questions that I want us to bring to this text as we turn to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Please give this your careful attention as it is God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, give us a mind and a heart to sit under your word this morning, that by your spirit we might be conformed more into Christ's likeness. Humble us this morning and do a work in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, bringing this series to a, to a close, I want to summarize with this big idea. The good life is a life of faith and intentionality. To live the good life, we must be intentional about walking in the Spirit, which produces what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. Our sin distracts us from living this good and godly life. Bearing fruit is evidence that we have found the good life. So we're going to begin by looking at verses 16 and 18, as well as 24 through 26. And I just want you to observe, right here at the beginning, the active language in this passage. Walking by the Spirit, opposing the flesh, crucifying the flesh, keeping in step by the Spirit. Does any of that sound like passive language to you? Does that sound like something that just happens to us? No. And so that brings up important theological questions for us, doesn't it? Is this good life one of faith? Or is it one of intentionality and effort? Or is it both? We're going to answer that by taking a brief detour through a little bit of church history. Luther's protest of the Roman Catholic Church, which kind of came to its climax in 1517, it started over this issue of selling pardons for sin. The Catholic Church was trying to raise money to build the Sistine Chapel. And so to do that, they came up with this clever clearance sale, a fire sale, if you would, where you could buy pardon from the Pope with enough coin in your pocket. And while this may have been the presenting issue at the time, the core issue which began to develop with the emerging Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church was how a sinner could be made right with God. And so as Luther studied and taught on the New Testament books of Romans and Galatians in particular, the Spirit of God breathed new life into him and gave him an understanding of this simple, unchanged message of the gospel. Sinners are made right with God, not through any work or merit that we achieve, but only by receiving the gracious gift of righteousness which Christ has won for us. 
When we acknowledge our great sin and need and trust that Christ has won victory over sin and death for us, we receive the righteousness of God. And so Romans 1.17 says, the righteous live by faith. Now, I think it's important for us as we're talking about what Luther did in the work of the Reformation, I think it's important for us to remember that and not to speak as if Luther was discovering the gospel message for the first time, as if it had never existed before. I think sometimes we like to talk as if, like, Paul wrote the New Testament, died, and then it got lost for, you know, 1,600 years until Martin Luther came along. That's not what happened. But what did happen is that over time, the Roman Catholic Church began to obscure the true beauty of the gospel by adding sacraments and works and tradition into the gospel messages. So what the gospel became was Jesus plus all of these other things means that you can be right with God. And Martin Luther came and reminded us of the message of the Bible, of the message of the church fathers, of the message of the early church and championed this wonderful message that it's Jesus plus nothing brings us salvation. Maybe you can remember if you lived in D.C. more than for five years or so, uh, you probably remember when the Washington Monument had all the scaffolding that was around it, right? You remember that? And the repairs that they were trying to do on the monument sort of obscured the beauty of what the monument really was for several years. Well, when Luther comes along and he champions this message, this biblical message, the gospel of Jesus, he reminded the church, he, he, he sounded the alarms that the Roman church had bought into this subtle lie that they had needed to contribute, to some, contribute in some way to merit or earn our salvation, obscuring the true beauty of the gospel. And so Luther comes along and he knocks down the scaffolding and he reminds us of the true beauty of our Savior and what he has accomplished. And so Luther's work led to these five pillars of Reformation belief, which have become known as the five solas. These solas include solus Christus and sola gratia and sola fide, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And taken together, they mean that the only mediator and savior for mankind is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of what he accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, we can be justified, which means we can be declared to be in the right with God as a gift of God's grace simply by putting our faith in Christ. These were radical ideas at the time. And they produced two pretty extreme reactions. The first was the reaction of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, they accused Luther and his followers that they had become lawless. And all this fancy talk about solas and justification was really just an excuse to live a disobedient and sinful life. Now, let's be fair. This is an easy and subtle twisting of the gospel message that many people who claim to be Christians today have bought into. There's this idea, there's a, there can be this emphasis in many churches on so much freedom and grace that there's no talk about obedience and discipline. And unfortunately, many people today have been duped into believing that just because you've prayed a prayer once that you can sort of carry Jesus around in your back pocket as if he's your get-out-of-hell-free card. And that's just not the case. But the second reaction came from some of Luther's followers. 
many of whom immediately, almost immediately, rejected church tradition and spiritual disciplines that had been passed down through the years. This was particularly true of the Anabaptist movement, but we even see it in leaders like the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, who called tradition and extra-biblical spiritual disciplines the foulness of human commands. Some of you may have had similar reactions to human tradition and spiritual discipline and structure. Maybe you've come from a really legalistic church that really said, you have to be like this if you're really going to be a Christian. Maybe you came from a Roman Catholic tradition where, again, it was emphasized all of these things that you have to do to earn salvation. And so now the very thought sometimes of someone suggesting spiritual discipline or someone suggesting tradition leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. Luther himself at the time recognized the tension that the gospel message creates in the Christian life. He said it this way, because we are still at war with our sinful flesh and our sinful nature, he compared the Christian life to a drunk man who can't stay on his horse and either falls off on one side into legalism or falls off on the other side into cheap grace. And it's really hard to stay on top in the middle riding the horse. Philip Melanchthon, Luther's colleague, who was writing at the time of Luther and was helping him sort of uh, synthesize his thoughts, he said this, he clarified their position on tradition, and he said that they were not questioning whether tradition or discipline or practice was helpful. They were calling into question whether it was necessary to earn salvation. Luther himself wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Galatians, and writing on this passage Verses 16 to 26, he said this, You cannot fulfill the law because sin dwells in you as long as you live. Therefore, it is impossible that you could fulfill the law, which is why we need the righteousness of God to be imputed to us and to be given to us by faith. However, he said, in the meanwhile, endeavor yourselves to walk in the spirit, that is, wrestle in spirit against the flesh, and follow spiritual motions and disciplines. Friends, we don't practice tradition, discipline, or place certain structures in our lives to earn favor from God, to earn love from God. That's not how this works. But we must be intentional about putting things in our lives, disciplines, practices, structures in our lives with, which help us to walk in the spirit so that we do not gratify desires of the flesh. It is these practices which help to renew our desires, our loves, and what we want most. You see, the power of the gospel message is not simply to give us faith, nor is it to change our outward behaviors alone, but the gospel pierces to our inward, most deepest recesses of our hearts, changing us from the inside and renewing not just what we believe or what we do, but what we want. This is why when the disciples come to Jesus in John chapter 1, Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? Literally, he's asking, what do you want? What do you want? It is this inward spiritual renewal that our passage is calling us to actively participate in. And so the good life is a life of faith. It is also a life of intentional walking in the Spirit. 
not because it's necessary to earn our salvation, but because it is helpful and necessary for living the life that Christ has called us to. And so this passage begins by contrasting these opposing desires of our sinful nature and our renewed spiritual nature. Your sinful nature is desiring things. Your spiritual nature is desiring things. But if you are in Christ, only one of these natures is the real you. The desires of the flesh are not what you really want. The Spirit has set you free. Amen? But there is very much a real war that still exists in the Christian life, isn't there? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 articulated it this way. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, our sin... The works of our flesh, they are a distraction from the good life. Because they tear us from our new identity, they tear us away from our new identity in Christ. The new person, this new man or woman that we are in Christ. This word here in your passage that you see for desires of the flesh is epithumia, which is where we get the idea of lust. It can literally mean in this context an over-desire or a mega-desire. This is so important. You see, because the main problem our sinful flesh has is not so much desires for bad things, but a twisted over-desire for good things. So let me just give you a few examples of what this looks like by looking at these uh, works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul gives in verses 19 through 21. Look at how Paul begins this list with sexual immorality. The word here is porneia, and it literally covers a very wide range of sexual sin. Sexual sin in the Bible takes the good gift of sex given to us by God and twists it for our own selfish gain. Now, as far as I am aware, every time the Apostle Paul writes out a list of sins like this in the New Testament, he always puts sexual immorality in the front. Have you noticed that? You see, Paul is getting at something that many of us in this room know by experience. Sexual sin feeds the desires of our sinful nature in ways unlike any other sin. It pulls at our hearts, leading us away from the good and godly life, just as the book of Proverbs warns. In order to hide or justify sexual immorality, it requires participation in many other sins. Lying to cover our sin. Anger to make the sins of others seem bigger than our own. Or even drunkenness to numb the pain and the conviction that we feel. Or take sorcery as another example. Now you might say, I'm no witch and I don't even like Halloween. So what does this have to do with me? 
Well, the Greek word here is pharmakeia, which is where we get the word pharmacology. And in this ancient context, it applied to drugs used in witchcraft. And so in our context, pharmakeia and things like these would include the use and abuse of all kinds of drugs, such as performance enhancers or painkillers, both of which numb the soul and destroy lives. We use drugs because we have an over-desire to manufacture feelings or comfort that only God should provide. Enmity includes all hostility between individuals or communities, not only hostile acts, but hostile sentiments and feelings. Taken together with strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissension, division, and envy, and we have the recipe for 21st century social and political discourse. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in it, isn't it? At their root, many of these works of the flesh are driven by an over-desire to be in the right or to be seen as right or as important. Even the way God-fearing Christians tend to relate to each other today often fits the description of these works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit, which come below. Now, you may know the name John Calvin, the French reformer who did most of his work from the city of Geneva. He is well known for his theological work and even has a subset of theology named after him, appropriately titled Calvinism. But I wonder how many of you know about his struggles with works of the flesh, like anger, dissension, division, and envy. By the age of 25, Calvin had already produced his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, a wonderful and enormously helpful theology book that is still relevant to Christians today. But it's also clear that by the age of 25, Calvin had a very high estimation of himself, and he looked down with enmity on other leaders in the church. We have letters written between Calvin and some of his mentors, and his mentors were rebuking him for his rancid language toward others and his arrogance about his intellect. Calvin's epithumia was his own importance. A few years later, together with another man named William Farrell, Calvin battled against a church council in Bern, Switzerland over minor issues of very little importance. He even flew off the handle and he called the council in Bern the council of the devil. A few days later, trying to make a defense for himself, Calvin lied about the conflict and said that it never happened. His reputation was destroyed. And soon after, at a council in Zurich, Calvin learned that he was widely regarded by other Reformation leaders as the problem in Switzerland and not its solution. His pride and his ego were crushed. He realized that by his temper and his envy and his rivalry, he had produced dissension and division in the church. And so for three and a half years, He took a much less active role in the church and doubted that he would ever return to church service again. And yet he did, as a humbled and wise peacemaker rather than a peace destroyer. And it was only because of this long and painful process of his sinful nature being put to death that he became the historic leader which we can celebrate today, who left us with gems like this. Mercy 
has swallowed up all misery, and goodness all misfortune. For all these things which were to be weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death to pierce us are turned for us into exercises for which we can profit. If we are able to boast with the apostle saying, O hell, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It is because by the Spirit of Christ promised to the elect, we live no longer, but Christ lives in us. Here's the bad news. Our sin, our works of the flesh, they are not just a distraction from the good life. They are an offense against a holy and righteous God. Our over-desires cause us to stand condemned in this body of sinful flesh. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who has freed us from bondage to sin and slavery so that we might live a new life in him. He has crucified our flesh in his death. We belong to him by faith. And now, by the power of the Spirit, we can live the good life, not just because we have to, but because we want to. And the result is that we will begin to live a life that bears much fruit. Now, have you ever felt anxious or ashamed because you feel like you're not making as much spiritual progress as you should. I know I have. Perhaps you just can't get control of your mouth and why do I keep saying things that I don't want to say? Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's an addiction that just keeps coming back time and again. That's why I love, you know, Reformation Week. I love returning to these stories of saints of the past that We can celebrate not just because of how great they were, but because of the work that God did in their life. And I can be reminded that God is still doing a work in my life, working out fruit in my own life story. Here's the encouragement for us this morning. Bearing fruit is a gradual process. For most of us, it's not just going to be an instant thing. And that is hard for us because the works of our flesh, they are instant, right? They're concrete actions and we want them to stop. But peace, patience, kindness, and so on, these are, these are not concrete actions. And like a good fruit, their growth is gradual. And God gives the growth in his own timing. Rebecca Lyons, the author of this book, Rhythms of Renewal, um, she had written two books prior to this one about finding freedom from anxiety and panic attacks. So she became renowned for traveling and writing and speaking and helping other Christians find freedom from anxiety. In this book, she describes how for seven years she thought she was living a life of freedom from anxiety until one event threw her into a panic attack that was worse than any she had had before. And when that happened, she felt like the biggest fraud in the world. How can I write and travel and encourage other Christians to find freedom if I can just have it come back worse than ever before? But you know, often it's through our biggest weaknesses and failures when God gives the greatest growth. 
Which is why how we handle our weakness and failure makes all the difference in the world. When we find ourselves stuck in patterns of sin and distraction or of weakness, not bearing the fruit that we want to see, we can either fall into ourselves with pity and self-condemnation or we can fall into grace in the arms of Jesus. Abide in my love, Jesus said. Dear friend, if you have put your faith in Christ, then you belong to him. He's at work in you. And I know that many of you are suffering. Many of you are fighting persistent sins which just don't seem to go away. Perhaps through the series you've recognized your own distraction and apathy in your life. But friend, let me encourage you, the good life is not outside of your grasp. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit is not outside of your grasp. Your suffering does not define you, nor do the sins of your past. The the persistent sins in your life in the present, those aren't you, not the real you anyways. So friends, I want to call you this morning to abide in Christ, to trust in him, and to fall into his grace this morning. I have one final Reformation Day story for you, and this one is my favorite. It is the story of Lady Jane Grey, the grandniece of King Henry VIII. You might remember from your high school history that King Henry VIII was a devout Catholic king and even a theologian who at one point had refuted Luther in his own theological book. But Henry had an epithumia. He loved the Catholic Church, but he had a desire for a male heir, which he loved even more. And so his first wife, Catherine, was not bearing him a male heir. He had six children with Catherine, only one of which survived. Her name was Mary. The Catholic Church, as far as Henry knew, was unwilling to provide an annulment for him so that he could go and find a new wife. And so Henry, he changed teams to the Protestant church where Thomas Cranver, Cranmer, the Reformation leader in England, was reluctantly willing to help Henry if it meant weakening the ties of the Catholic church in England. Fast forward a few years and Henry ended up having seven wives and six annulments and only one male heir. Do you see how an epithumia can leave a path of great destruction, even though it begins with just a, maybe a distraction. When Henry died, his only male heir was Edward, a sickly child, nine years in age. Edward died just a few years after being on the throne, and so this is where our story of Lady Jane Grey really takes off. Henry's first daughter, Mary, was Catholic to the bone and was the next heir in line to the throne. Her rule, the Reformation leaders knew, would dismantle all that the Reformation movement had accomplished in England. And so the members of the Protestant church in in England had a plan. They would try to make Lady Jane Grey, the grandniece, queen instead. She was 16 years in age, and despite being so young, she had lived a good and disciplined life life. 
She was committed to the cause of the Reformation. She was highly educated. She knew the original biblical languages and often corresponded with other leading Reformation figures. She was on the throne for nine days until Mary had her arrested. Mary tried to offer Lady Jane a deal. If Jane would only partake of the Catholic Mass, she would be set free. But Lady Jane declined. At her trial, Mary's bishop was trying to trick Jane into affirming that salvation, that her salvation came not just by faith, but also through her human works. But Jane spotted the trick and she said this, I deny that. And I affirm that only faith saves. It is meat. It is good, it is right for a Christian to do good works in token that he follows the steps of his master Christ. Yet may we not say that we profit to our salvation. For when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants and faith only in Christ's blood saves us. A few days after her 17th birthday, Lady Jane was executed. Her last words were, I here die a true Christian woman and I trust to be saved by the blood of Christ and by none other means. Lady Jane, despite having been thrust into a political scheme which she did not choose, she bore much fruit. She is a shadow of Christ who, resisting all opportunity and temptation to save his own life, was crucified in his flesh so that we might find new life, a good life in him. A good life, a beautiful life, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which are the markers of this good life that he promises to us. And so, church, as we go from here, let us keep in step with the Spirit, for we belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this meditation over these last couple months on the good life would sink down deep into our hearts and that we would remember that you have called us to a life of intentionality, that by faith you have given us the power to be set free from sin and to now follow you wherever you may lead. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into the good and abundant life of joy, of peace, of patience and kindness, of love, bearing much fruit as we love you and we love one another. Help us, Lord, to keep in step with your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.